forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome, Doc. We are going to talk about an acronym today. Yes. Not very many people have heard of this. Yeah. (laughs) I think everybody's heard of this acronym. And the acronym is ADHD. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. (laughs) And if you were around anywhere in the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s and the early 2000s, you heard that acronym, I don't know, every day, somehow, some way, because it was a, it was a big thing back then. Everybody was talking about ADHD. It seemed almost as if every kid had ADHD. There were classrooms where it seemed like more than half the class was being diagnosed. And I'm holding my fingers up here doing scare quotes, diagnosed with ADHD. And a very large percentage of America was on prescription drugs for ADHD. And so we want to talk about this because your own professional journey and the founding of Royer Neuroscience and Inner Armor and all the things you're doing kind of paralleled the rise of that disorder and your work with it and some of the insights you gained from treating it and led to where you are today. And so I want to have you just kind of tell that story because it really led you to to some realizations. And I think it's also an interesting part of that story, which I hope you'll get to. We just don't hear as much about that acronym as we used to, which I think is an interesting part of the story as well. While we don't hear a lot about it in the news, media, that kind of thing, uh, it's still, there's a lot of people that are, I see in the professional sports world that it's just kind of commonplace to say, okay, this person needs to be on a stimulant, so we're going to get them on a stimulant. A lot of people, you know, I work with a lot of athletes who, you know, talk about their ability to focus and pay attention that they have to do at a very elite level. And they really feel like the only option they have is to use a stimulant to do that. And those cases now, as were back in the 90s, I would say we have to look at what the brain is doing. Just because you're having a problem not paying attention doesn't mean that you actually have this disorder and that we now have to infuse your brain with a class two substance that's in the same category as speed and other street drugs to enhance your your attention. So it's still, you know, widely used. It's just not as like the topic that everybody's talking about. Like if you did a news story on it, nobody listened to it because they've heard so many news stories on it. But it still um, goes back to an overarching principle that I learned very early on because of the rise of this disorder that drives all the work that I do today. So uh, I kind of have this love-hate relationship with ADHD where I've seen so much of it, but yet it's shaped kind of my vision and my passion that if I hadn't seen it going on, I wouldn't see the rise of it happening 
I wouldn't have developed this mindset of where I am today, which I wasn't taught in graduate school. Uh, we were taught how to use a DSM, which is the, the manual for mental disorders, how to go through the checklist, do the diagnostic interview. And based on the responses to those questions or maybe to a checklist that you're going to give a brain-based disorder on somebody's subjective responses to different behaviors that they're having. Now, I want to say that again, a brain-based disorder based on somebody's report of their behaviors. There is so much distance (laughs) between the neurological brain activity that truly happens in ADHD and the downstream behavior that can happen because of so many other things that could get diagnosed as ADHD. Early on, as we started to look at this, I was calculating a misdiagnosis of the disorder of close to 60 to 65% of people that they didn't have the disorder. Or if they did, uh, there was another, another percentage that actually had had it, but it was secondary to something else. And so that really, that disconnect, and many times that, what, that is what instills passion or vision in people is they find something wrong or broken that they realize there's maybe something I can do about that. And, you know, that has been kind of the fire that started back in the 90s for me is to address this disorder. Well, let's, let's go you know, through the way back machine here. Yeah. Let's go back to the 90s and talk about, just tell the story here about, you know, clinically you came out, you were, what you were doing in the field, what you were encountering. Let's talk a little bit about what ADHD is and what it isn't uh, technically, medically, and kind of your first encounters with it. Yeah, so when I was, uh, this would be 94, I had the opportunity to become the division chief of uh, psychology and psychiatry at a very large hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And our service, our purpose was to help physicians with any mental health diagnoses, uh, to also help inpatient at the hospital uh, behaviorally with behavioral interventions. But our, our main thing was diagnostics. And so my training was in neuropsych testing, looking at the brain, how it works. Well, looking at testing and how the brain works. I hadn't really gotten into actual imaging until a little bit later, but I was having just multiple physicians who they had maybe tried somebody on a stimulant. And uh, back then, you know, big ones were, you know, Ritalin and Concerta and Adderall. And they were finding this isn't really working, you know, like it's not as easy as the drug rep, you know, presented it to me is now they're coming back and Johnny has a tick, uh, you know, repetitive behavior, or he's become more obsessive compulsive, or he can't sleep at night, or now Johnny's got a weight problem. And they would be asking our service to look at this and say, well, what, what else can we be doing? Or what should we increase a dose or that kind of thing? And so we started to like really study these kids. And we took, took that those group of kids coming through and we realized when we do really good neuropsych testing and we really kind of look at what's going on emotionally and psychologically, that this isn't ADHD. This is something else. This is anxiety, depression. In a third of the kids, it was some type of sleep problem. What? Who even measures sleep when you talk about ADHD? You know, I know our listeners out there, you know somebody or you are or you have a child. 
did the doctor ask you about their sleep? And even beyond that, did they do any form of sleep study to see what's going on? Because a third of individuals who get diagnosed with ADHD don't have ADHD. They have a sleep problem, right? Okay, doc, ADHD is a term from the DSM, which is the manual of psychiatric or psychological disorders. Mm -hmm. What is the actual clinical definition yeah, and I think ADHD. Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about this before. Like, if I see these behaviors and my hand is shaking, do I now have shaky hand syndrome? Right. Right. And this is kind of the downside of the DSM is it, it's just describing different behaviors. And so as, as I go through these, I want the listener to think about there's different categories of how I produce behaviors are different reasons, right? Psychologically, emotionally, physiologically. These are all upstream, starting with neurological. So imagine neurological is the first thing that happens, an electrical firing in the brain, and then there's a physiological response, a psychological or emotional response, and then a behavioral response. So the DSM-5, the kind of the, the negative I would put on it is, it's just looking at downstream. There's no as I'm measuring, this is just descriptive behavior. Right. To put it in popular terms, it'd be like, um, you know, I get sleepy and fall, you know, fall asleep watching the TV at eight o'clock at night. And my wife says, what's wrong with you? And I go, well, I get sleepy, right? There could be 20 reasons why I'm getting sleepy, yes. right? It's not telling you anything just to say that I get sleepy and fall asleep watching TV. There could be 20 reasons why. So, yeah. And so what I'm going to give you is exactly how this diagnosis is made almost, you know, 99% of the time is you're looking, this is what our uh, medical arena has said, well, this is how we're going to make this diagnosis. Okay. So let's look at it. First of all, you have to have a, a consistent pattern of either inattention. So you define the ADHD as either inattentive or hyperactivity and impulsivity. So there's two categories, this inattentive kind of staring out the window, or you have this hyperactive impulsive type. And that has to interfere with functioning or development. We're probably already starting to get kind of vague here. Okay, what level of functioning? What level of development? Okay, but we're going to make the, the clinician has the ability to say, yeah, this is causing some impairment in functioning or development. So if you're on the inattentive side, okay, so that means you're the kid who's not bouncing off the walls or the adult who's not bouncing off the walls. You just find yourself like losing focus. You know, you're staring at the wall, okay? You have to have six or more of these inattention symptoms by the age of 16 and five or more for adolescents. So let's look at what these are, okay? Often fail to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork or work or other activities. That's one. You have to hit, hit six of these. Often has trouble atol- holding attention on task or play activities. Often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Often does not follow through on instructions or schoolwork. Often has trouble organizing tasks and activities. Often avoids or dislikes things that require mental effort over long periods of time. Often loses things for necessary tasks. Is often easily distracted. How are we measuring that? I don't know. Is often forgetful in daily activities. So if you have six of those, you are going to get the inattentive type of ADHD. Okay. 
I love these for the impulsive one. Okay, so for hyperactivity and impulsivity side of it, you're going to have six or more. Often fidgets or tap hands or feet or squirms in seat. Okay, I don't know exactly how we define, like what is often, what's what is too often? little, yeah, too what, little. I don't know. Often leave seat in situations when expected to sit. I do that because my bladder, I have to use the bathroom <laughs> all the time. Okay. Often runs about or climbs in situations where it's not appropriate. Often unable to play or take part in leisure activities quietly. Is often, <laughs> this has got to be my favorite, is often on the go acting as if driven by a motor. I remember, I remember when you worked, when I worked on the book, that one, we had so many laughs over it. Like, I'm on the go driven by a motor. What is that? Yeah. What does that even what mean? Are, what are you talking about? Compared to who or compared to what? On the go, act, off, acting driven by a motor. I mean, like, I don't know how to measure that. Right. See, See, I'm coming out of neuropsych where we measure exact points of IQ, right. exact percentages of changes in depression. We can measure exact data about attention right. compared to thousands of individuals with computer technology. And I'm finding that almost everybody on the planet that's diagnosed with this, we're using a criteria of is often on the go acting as if driven by a motor, often talks excessively. And I know a lot of people who talk excessively, and I wouldn't say that that's because they have ADHD, right? Well, I, I want to even go back to one that always struck me about that on the go driven by a motor thing. He has the joke about, you say that if that's as if that's a bad thing. Right, exactly. Right? Like that's a, that's a disorder. Well, well, being on the go, like you're driven by a motor might be a really positive quality. Who's to say that that's a negative quality? Right. I, it's confusing. whatever it means. I mean, so you're super active and you've got a lot of pep and you want to get up and go and make things happen. Is that a bad thing? Right. Yeah. It's, and we, we would value that in the adult world or in the workplace. Yeah. If I'm an em employer, I want that guy. I want the guy who's on the go and he's driven by a motor and he's getting stuff done. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you wanted to describe that more to me and explain that, I know somebody's a listener out there is going to say, well, this is what they really mean. This is how it's made, is right. you read these things off and say, is he or she meeting these criteria, okay? Often has trouble waiting his or her turn. Man, I've been in the line at Home Depot yeah. and Lowe's, and the people that are having problems waiting their turn is not because they have ADHD, that you can probably guess. They, they're irritable, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're frustrated, right? And that's what's going to lead us into, well, what are these other things going on? Um, often interrupts or intrudes on others, butts into conversations. Okay. Some of that may be just poor social development. But I understand how they're using the DSM, but I want us to like really step back for a second. Just because that's the way it's done doesn't mean that's correct. Okay. What you're doing here is you're doing the exact way of diagnosing that was done in 1903, 1905, when Dr. Still, it was called something different then, but it developed into ADHD when he identified this group in a uh, 
group of children in Europe, right? And he did the same thing. Is he had a checklist? We've altered that a little bit, but it was these behaviors. They have this behaviors. They have this disorder, right? Well, that's changed. It's changed its name a few times, uh, but it's still ADHD, and the criteria have changed. But the process—that's what I want our listeners to understand. The process of just looking at behaviors, diagnosing a this disorder, when really this is a brain-based thing. That my way to treat this is to change the neurochemical reactions in the brain, okay, versus, and not even look at the brain, okay? What other medical condition would we rely on the same type of technology that was occurring? I would call that technology, you know, or way that he's diagnosing in 1903, 1905. If I did the, the, what they were doing with cardiovascular diagnoses and treatment in 1903, 1905, you know, a person would get sued, right? Well, yeah. And plus there's sort of a logical, I don't know if it's logical, technological fallacy, but sort of a logical failure where you say you haven't, ex, you haven't explained the causes to the effects. Again, so if you say this kid in class is whatever, not paying attention or whatever, I was like, well, what if they didn't sleep but two hours last night? Right. What if they're living in a house where there's barking dogs and screaming parents and they haven't slept? That would account for their behavior. They may not have ADHD. The kid's just sleepy. Right. Or sleep deprived or whatever. Or traumatized. Or traumatized right. or whatever the case may be, right? So, so it's taking, like you say, this cluster of behaviors. And what's weird about it is, number one, it presumes that there's a norm, Right. Yeah. So, right. You say, well, what a, a good child would do would not um, act super active as if they are on a motor. Again, I don't know. So you've taken you, you've picked some kind of a norm of what you think a good child is. Secondly, you haven't asked for any alternative explanations. Right. And three, to your point, you haven't gotten upstream and 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 looked at the data in the brain that would indicate that this is a, an actual measurable thing. You know, like, you know as, as you just said, you know, you look at cardiovascular disease, you look at diabetes, you look at anything else that you'd be diagnosed wrong with, and you'd go, well, here's the test results. Right. You have this. Um, so, on, like, on all three of these points, it's sort of a failure. And yet, people were using these very rough, weird approximate sort of behavior descriptions and diagnosing people willy-nilly and how many of those diagnoses were made i know you you'll go on about this one were made by teachers right so you came into the parent teacher conference and the teacher says well you know i'm not a doctor but i've been a teacher for a number of years and i see a lot of kids and you know i'm pretty sure that johnny or sally has adhd because they just don't seem to pay attention to me or respond to me the way I would like them to. Yeah. And um, I get that that behavior is happening, but you have to ask, why is that behavior happening? So before I even got into imaging, okay, and that's what's very important to understand, before I really started to look at, there are ways to measure this neurologically. I was so skeptical of seeing this because it's like, Man, have you ever seen what a kid does when they're depressed? They fidget. They uh, act like they're on the go or 
they stare off into space and they're not interested in completing tasks or they're irritable. I mean, there are so many things on here that if I took them out, those criteria, and put them under a pediatric depression diagnosis, they'd have the same symptoms. Yeah. Take, an, take a child who's anxious, who has an anxiety disorder, and you'll find the fidgetiness, the yeah. restlessness, the exactly impulse of doing You know, it's, it's the same. Take a child who has a learning disability, cannot process what's going on in the classroom. What do they do? They do the same thing. You know, you, you, we talked about that when we worked on that book because you made the point that, so again, poor Johnny. Johnny is always I'm like, it's like, remember, remember when, I don't know if you remember when I was a kid, there was a, this, this was, it was a Boy Scouts magazine. It was with Goofus and Gallant in it, or it was Highlights Magazine or whatever. And there's always Goofus and Gallant. Gallant is a good kid. Goofus is all the bad stuff. So there's always- Goofus must have had ADHD. Yeah, there's always, <laughs> there's always Johnny and poor Johnny is Goofus, right? In all of our examples. But Johnny- uh, they're trying to learn to read and Johnny has an eye tracking problem. Right. And like you used to say, you know, actually moving your eyes across the line, dropping them down one line to the left side and picking up the words again, you know, requires, you know, visual acuity and a whole bunch of stuff. Right. So maybe Johnny's got some visual issues, uh, you know, maybe some learning disorder issues, whatever it is. Um, and so Johnny just having a harder time reading. So when the teacher's sitting there, all the kids are doing, you know, and Hey, Sally, you know, read the, you know, third paragraph for us, Johnny. And now Johnny, you read it and he can't. Right. Right. So now he's, you know, he's anxious and he's fitting, fidgeting his seat because he's terrified the teacher's going to call on him. Right. Next. And the teacher goes, man, look at Johnny over there. He's fidgeting and looks super anxious. See, I'm sure he has attention deficit hyperactivity. No, Johnny is struggling to read because he needs glasses. Yeah. Right? He needs eyeglasses and he's terrified that you're going to call on him. And oh, by the way, his mom works second shift and is this and that. And he didn't get any sleep last night. And you're making this psychological um, diagnosis of him as a teacher that doesn't, that isn't you know, actually correlated with any actual causes or explanations and it has no data associated, but now you're sort of dooming Johnny to be an ADHD kid. And we'll get into a second what you're going to do, which is you're going to pump them full of, you know, super powerful amphetamines. Right. And if Johnny has an eye tracking problem, which a lot of boys do, you know, like if you look at a playground of five-year-olds, six-year-olds, what are the girls doing? Jumping rope, hopscotch. I mean, they're doing all these coordinated activities and the boys are kind of stumbling around, pushing each other, you know. Uh, they, if they had to walk a balance beam, no way. You know, bounce a ball, you know. The only ones that are bouncing a wall are the ones that are probably going to play, you know, college sports someday, right? And we know that, that they probably have poor ocular motor coordination. So what happens when a child has poor ocular motor coordination and you ask them to read. Well, they can't use their fine muscles in their eyes. So what do they have to do? They have to move their shoulders. They have to move their head. They have to move their trunk. They have to move their entire body to be able to track the page. Instead of what we, you know, a good reader does is you're just moving your eyes. Your body's not moving. Your chin's not moving. Nothing's moving. But Johnny's all over the place because he's trying to adjust his body to compensate for eye muscle coordination, right? This happens so much 
And then what happens is he gets on a stimulant, which further creates more tunnel vision for him, which means he has to move even more. And it just becomes very complicated. But um, that whole, this is how it's done. Even now, as you go into your doctor's office, there's no sophisticated technology or imaging or anything that's going to be offered to you. No one's going to test your kid. No. They're going to ask you survey questions, subjective survey questions. Does it seem like Johnny's kind of always on the go as if he has a motor? Does Johnny not listen to you very well? Does Johnny doesn't, right? And and again, no one's going to hook your kid up or run a blood test or do a meter on him or anything. They're just going to go, well... And, and that physician's got three and a half minutes to move on to the next patient and he's going to hand you a script. Right. So let's talk about that script. Yeah. Okay? And I think these are the things that were really getting me kind of fired up. Yeah, was yeah. like, I was seeing these kids and what I was seeing was they, got, they then instantly knee-jerk get put on the stimulants, right? And um, you'd start to see these cowboy kind of psychiatrists that were like, well... The normal dose of this medicine, this concert is, you know, 36 milligrams for this child. But let's double that, you know. <laughs> and at the, at the hospital where I worked, we'd, they'd send these kids in who weren't improving. And I'm like, how is this kid's heart not blowing up? What are you doing? Like, you're just a little bit kind of worked some. So we're going to try, you know, six times that diagno- that amount of medicine and be like, you're going to kill this kid. And so then what we would see is we'd see these kids on the ICU. So let's talk for our listeners about what those drugs like Ritalin and Concerta and Adderall were. As you said, they're stimulants or amphetamines. And there's a particular reason why they're giving. It's kind of, kind of counterintuitive because on the one hand, you think, well, Johnny is just drifting and he's, you know, this or that. Or, or Johnny is like he's on a, he has a motor and he's on the go. So why would you give the kid an amphetamine? Well. Right, because you would think that he's so hyperactive, you'd want to slow him down. Why give him speed? Well, the issue is right is that the amphetamine activates this HPA axis we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So what it does is it causes this flood of adrenaline into your body. Right. You take you take a stimulant, take an amphetamine, boom, you have adrenaline, and adrenaline gives you focus. So the example would be you're driving down the road on your way home from work. It's twilight and a deer jumps out in front of your car. And I mean, instantly you slam the brakes, you swerve, you, you are hyper-focused at that moment. Maybe, you know, you miss the deer, but you had tremendous hyper-focus when that adrenaline flooded your system. So what they found was if you take kids or take us, take any of us, and you give us an amphetamine for a few hours, yeah. we are hyper-focused, but there's no free lunch because if you flood somebody with adrenaline, they come down. You want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, you hear these parents where they're just like, I, if the teacher tells me he's doing so well at school anymore on this medicine, they're not seeing him when he comes off of this and it's a nightmare at home. And... um we can't get him to eat when he's taking the medicine. And then when he's not taking it, he's eating everything. Um, and what happens is you start to disrupt other mechanisms in the nervous system. So we've talked about the autonomic nervous system. 
And what that stimulant does, which is the first course of action that a lot of people are doing, what that stimulant does is it pushes the nervous system into fight-flight state. Okay, if you measure it, you look at it, what's going on across the board in the nervous system, you will see that it's overactivated by that stimulant to introduce focus. Um, with that, though, when we get overactivated, there's other things that happen is that starts to disrupt my circadian rhythm, right? You have something very stressful happen to you mid-afternoon. It takes you a while to come down from that. And sometimes you find yourself wide awake at night, right? Well, this amphetamine's doing this all the time when it's going into the system. And, you know, the magic thing for the doctors to figure out, well, like, how much can we keep them on but not disrupt the stuff? That's a joke. You're disrupting the nervous, the nervous system and the circadian rhythm the moment he puts that in his mouth. Whether you try to time that out and say it'll be out of his system by this time, it's not going to be. It's disrupted the normal reaction of cortisol and melatonin in the body and the circadian rhythm cycle. So the sleep, that's number one to go. Um, number two is you start to see the appetite stuff. You start to see some you know, real issues with them being able to maintain appetite. Three is you start to see anxiety, okay, stress. Um, he now does, uh, can't sleep or is anxious. And so then they're going to put, we're going to put him on a second drug, right? Um, the other thing that happens a lot is ticks, you know, repetitive movement. So, oh, uh, he has Tourette's now, uh, or he has a tick disorder. Really? Before we like go down that path, which is now something to sedate <laughs> right. the nervous system, before we go down that path, maybe, let, let me raise my hand here, maybe could the diagnosis be wrong before you start right. to now say, well, he needs a stimulant in the morning. He needs his uppers and then he needs his downers. and Yeah. yeah. So now I got to give him something to sleep at night, <laughs> right? So then this is what started happening later in the 90s. Um, was we'd never heard, we ever talked about anything called juvenile bipolar disorder. Nobody ever talked about bipolar disorder being diagnosed in kids. You know, prior to the early 90s, nobody would have ever heard of that. Well, all of a sudden what started happening was, and it's very interesting, the timing of this, all of a sudden these kids would be diagnosed with juvenile bipolar disorder. Like, what? What is that? Well, Johnny now, he's on these uppers, downers, day after day after day, and he just out now bites somebody on the playground, <laughs> right? You know, right. or does something drastic Crazy, yeah, stuff. in his behaviors, right? And we're like, oh, it's juvenile bipolar disorder. And I want to raise my hand again and say, could we go all the way back to the beginning? And is it just possible? That he's on 72 milligrams of Concerto, which is a super powerful amphetamine. And you're jacking this 10-year-old boy. Yeah. Could the diagnosis be wrong? Yeah. Could... Is it possible on the go, fidgety, that's how you're diagnosing, that that is wrong. You missed what was driving those things, right? And so what we were doing early on, we were like, we need to do more testing. I want to do personality testing. I want to do uh, looking at what's going on psychologically and emotionally for this child before I start going down around. And many, many times we would see anxiety, depression, uh, trauma. And my formula for that is always you deal with that first before you go after the attention. Now, a lot of people say, well, it's a combo of the two. So we're also going to put the stimulant on here. And I say, my 
working, you know, doing this with thousands of kids is let's work with this sequentially. The elephant in the room when you pick up anxiety and depression is deal with that first because that can be driving all of these things. Now, if you deal with that and we still have the attention, maybe we want to go, you know, see this could have been a dual diagnosis. Well, you used to point out that huge percentage of these kids that got diagnosed with this or adults that got diagnosed with it, that it it was rooted in sleep disorders because sleep disorders will cause downstream anxiety and depression. Right. And that so often once you fixed their sleep, most of these other symptoms went away. Yeah. When we started to do sleep studies, uh, early 2000s, man, my whole world opened up on this. It was like, oh my gosh, there's no deep sleep going on. There's no REM sleep. If you're not getting any REM sleep at night or you're supposed to be getting 25% of your sleep is REM and you're only getting 5%, you know what's going to happen to your ability to learn, your ability to accomplish tasks. It's going to plummet, right? If you're not getting enough deep sleep and the body is extra fatigued and you're not hitting these marks that should be happening developmentally, because we change in our sleep patterns as we age. And so what we're able to do is we have a, a database that we use that when we do a sleep study on a child, we're able to see exactly what should be the amount of REM, what should be the amount of deep. And when these kids are off 15, 20%, it would be silly. It would be almost malpractice to start giving them an amphetamine when they have a sleep problem. Like that's totally, you don't want to do that. And so we early on would also do a lot of neuropsych testing to say, well, where is this kid intellectually, right? And maybe they have borderline intellectual functioning, which their attention isn't going to be average or above average. It's going to be borderline if their IQ is. The other thing we would look at is underlying learning disabilities. And then back then, before I had EEG, we would use computerized tests of attention where we're like, okay, how does he compare to other boys his exact age in his ability to focus on this task? for 20 minutes, 15 minutes. Introduce auditory and visual stimuli that are going to cause distraction and compared to his peers, where does he fall? And that one test that we would use a lot is the IVA, but there's also the TOVA, those kind of things. And we got really good at using these tests to help physicians understand if they were using medicine, how aggressively to use that medicine. See, there's no... There's no test you're using when your kid gets put on medicine or you get put on medicine, right? Like he comes back six weeks later, well, four weeks, because we got to get the prescription filled. Because about four weeks later and it's, um, how's he doing? Oh, he's focusing so much better. Great. He's not focusing that much better. Well, we should give him some more medicine, right? right? Instead of maybe the diagnosis is wrong. Or two, what does that mean? Right. Somebody explained to me what that means. Did dad who brought him in have a bad morning on the drive in? Yeah. You know, like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Dad just says the kid doesn't seem to be, you know, focusing or paying attention to me. Yeah. You're going to be 50 reasons why. Right. And dad has his own personality where he's maybe obsessive compulsive and he focuses on so many things too much. So... That led you over time to begin to use EEG to evaluate yes. the brain in a objective, data-driven way. 
And one of the things that you found was that there really was a sort of band of brainwave activity that could be classified as creating some of these symptoms, but it was not what people kind of expected, yeah. right? So there was a space where if someone had extremely high theta waves in their brain, so their brain was really drifting and slow, all really are kind of half asleep, you could make a case that there's a reason to sort of elevate their brain activity. But that that was a very, very small percentage of the cases you were evaluating. Most often, what was happening was when you would put these patients on EEG, you found that their brain was already in a high beta state. It was already running too fast. Yeah. Right? Because of anxiety, because of sleep, because of this, because of that, right? And then you introduced an amphetamine. So maybe their brain was running at 18, 19, 20 hertz. Then you gave them an amphetamine and you threw them up into the 30s. Yeah. Now they're like, I mean, it's like Frankenstein's monster where you put the electrical, you know, jumper cables on the, on the neck bolts and like fire this poor kid up into this state where now he's got elevated pulse and respiration and his, his adrenal glands are pumping out all this stuff. There's cortisol in his system. He's crashing and he can't sleep. Now you're giving him more and more and more and more and more. And that led you to have a very selective approach to how you diagnose this thing and treat them. And it's particularly for those kids that were, that were misdiagnosed and already had a lot of high beta in their brain. You realize you need to get them off the Adderall or the Ritalin or the Concerta and actually slow them down, right? Yeah. And we started to originally those computer tests of attention were our first real kind of objective measures. Like, and that laid the groundwork for EEG. And we still, with computer based attention measures, measured this for helping people like be on the right dose of something, or if they're doing another intervention, is that bringing them to the norm on their level of attention? But when I introduced EEG, that was a game changer. Like I actually wasn't pursuing that. I was at a conference for some biofeedback technology that I was going to use for anxiety disorders, some breathing techniques, some temperature changing stuff. And um, I was sitting next to a neurologist who said, uh, "Have you? are you using... EEG for, for ADHD. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And so then I started reading up on this and started to realize there, is, there are objective measures in somebody's EEG that can tell you when the brain is on so that it can focus or when it's off. Like think of a brake pedal. Is the person using too much brake pedal or too little? So we have a set of brain waves, four to eight hertz that are theta waves, that if you have too much of those, it's like too much of a brake pedal. If you have too little, it's not enough brake pedal. Normally, if you have too little, then what happens is the brain waves that we reserve for crisis, like seeing the lion or the bear, those are called high betas. If I don't have enough brake pedal, those kind of take off, okay? Or if other things cause me to have a lot of those fast high beta waves, I may lose my brake pedal, right? So there's a couple kind of, how does that happen? And in true ADHD, those thetas get too high, okay? 
And that's upstream what's happening. What's happening neurologically is that gets too high. That also gets very high in individuals who have epilepsy or seizure disorders, even higher. And it's not coincidental that a lot of kids with ADHD may have some underlying, you know, history of some seizures, different things like that. But when that theta gets up there, then the brain can't focus because it's kind of stuck in the mud. Um, And if you give it an amphetamine, the thetas will drop and the brain will focus. However, you can't control where is that going to go. You would hope that it would go into the focusing brain waves, which are around 12 to 15. But that's not an exact science with this flood of chemical. And so many times it pushes into exactly what you said, into this adrenaline response, which the brain will now become very overactivated. For inattentive, you remember when we were reading ADHD and the diagnosis, there's either an inattentive type or an ADHD impulsive hyperactive type. Well, inattentive, that makes sense. You know, the brain's checked out. Okay. And so I can see that Johnny's staring out the window and he must have a lot of theta. But where it gets really confusing for a lot of people is hyperactivity and impulsive, you know? Well, what I want you to think about is there's different responses to when your theta goes too high. When your theta goes too high, you can become very checked out. Or if you try to re-engage with what you're doing or somebody brings you back, you're going to have a startle response or you're going to have an impulsive, like, where am I? And what do we do when we have those responses, those startle responses? is we can feel fidgety. Like, what am I doing? I'm moving around. So this isn't just happening once. So I know you all know what a startle response is where you check out and you're startled. Imagine that that startle response is happening every three seconds. Mm -hmm. Not just once. You were checking out and all of a sudden, oh shoot, where am I? Reorient it. I kind of put my hands on the table. Where am I? Or, you know, I look around, try to re-engage my senses. But if that is happening, which happens in this, disorder is there's too much theta every three seconds. If that's happening every three seconds, behaviorally, I'm going to be all over the place. It's going to look like that because basically I'm keep, I mean, you know, I keep drifting off. My default state of my brain is drifted off. And in a, in a sense, like you say, you keep startling me awake. Exactly. You know, several times a you know, minute, you just keep, every time you look over my direction, it's like, well, huh, huh, huh. And you go, man, that kid is like really fidgety. Yes, And the real reality is, is that they're actually running so slow and every time you turn to them or call on them or something, it just keeps creating that sort of thing. And so we aren't really understanding why it is that they're fidgety. They're not running too fast. They're running too slow. So that's, there's a way you treat that. But on the other hand, there's that kid who really is running too fast. He's got too much high beta and you're lumping all of these people like goes back to what I was saying earlier about when my wife says, well, why are you falling asleep watching TV? I go, there could be 20 reasons why, why exactly. right? But you're lumping all, you're taking a behavior for which there are multiple explanations, lumping those all together and saying, here's how you fix it. You give the person or you give the kid a, a powerful amphetamine. And then if that doesn't work, you give them more amphetamine. And then if they've got negative, uh, side effects from methamphetamine, you give them other drugs to counter those side effects and you get stuck in a loop. And then the thing that always struck me that you used to point about this is, what's the exit strategy? Yeah, So exactly. you get your kid on Ritalin or Concerta or Adderall, you go, till when? 
Well, they get them through school. And then when they go off to the workplace, are they going to need it then? Are they going to need it? And before you know it, they're, they're 50, 60 years old and they're, they're still on the Adderall because there's no way they can ever function yeah. without it. Yeah. And, and then what are the, and then what are the long-term deleterious health effects? Exactly. If they're having these side effects. And I think one last thing on that high theta to explain the impulse, because it's always hard for people. Well, why would his brain be going slow and he's hyperactive? I want you to think about if you had little, ever had little kids and they get really tired at night, what do they do? They start doing everything they can to stay awake, right? And all of a sudden it's like you poured, you know, rocket fuel into them and they're running around and they're doing all kinds of stuff because they don't want to go to sleep. They want to avoid that from happening. And then they just like hit a wall, right? That's what happens in these hyperactive, the, st- the underlying neurological activity is the same, but behaviorally they display it in true ADHD. Now, the problem, as I studied like tens of thousands of these brains, is that you'll find that the brain, if it has areas where there's high beta or high stress, it will create areas where there's more of this slowing down as a way to try to balance that's plasticity in the brain. So what happens is the brain uses the slowing down as a way to balance out areas that are very overcharged. And so what happens is the teacher or the parent sees he's not focusing, which is the brain's compensatory mechanism to too much stress. And they want to take that away, which they will with the stimulant. But then what it does is it creates the other areas that were originally stressed that the brain was trying to cope at with theta. It all of a sudden makes those even more stressed. And that not looking at the brain is the biggest disservice that you can do to your child or as an adult when you're looking at this disorder. You have to look at the brain. And then what we found out is we can actually teach the brain through EEG feedback to get to a point where the thetas were under control, the high betas were under control, the focusing brains were, the focusing brain waves were higher and literally treat this in 83% of people that came to us, have them off their meds completely or at least 50%. That's crazy, right? And when I first did the study of my patients that had ADHD, I was so skeptical of like, this isn't going to work. You have to give them meds because I had been so indoctrinated with, that's the only way you treat this disorder. But when that first group came back that we studied, those first 20 kids, I didn't say, well, we found a solution. I actually went back to the interns and said, do it again because that can't be right. And then they came back again and the kids were better. And I started to realize man, we have the goose that laid the golden egg here is this EEG feedback is empowering the brain to heal itself, not chemically alter it like we've talked about before. So as as we said at the beginning, you don't hear as much about this. It it isn't like these behaviors or these disorders that have gone away, but the media latches every few years on to sort of the new hot new disease. And we just don't get the media attention that we did and you're not hearing about it as much. But there, there are people out there, as you say, that, that still struggle either with these behaviors or they have been diagnosed with this and they're sort of saddled with a medication regime that has been with them for years, right. or with a kid for years. 
So as we kind of wind this episode down, what do you have to say to those people out there, those listeners who either A, have a child or they themselves have some complex of behaviors that they're wondering if they have ADHD or B, they themselves or a child have been diagnosed with ADHD and been taking Adderall for years. What would you say to those two groups of listeners? Yeah. First, I would say your most important asset you have or that your child has is their brain. Okay. And this is not something to be treated like you're playing a dart game and you're just throwing things at it. You get one brain. You know, we can give you, you know, a new heart. <laughs> we can give you new organs. We can train your, take your blood out of you and put more blood in. You get one. Nobody's figured out how to give you a new brain, right? So we have to just step back and at a macro level, just be careful, one, with how we're going to diagnose it right? Like, let's take the time and energy to diagnose it. I want to help our listeners out there. If they want to see what their brain's doing before they go down this path, we're more than help. We can help them to get an EEG of their brain and see what's going on. We want to hear from listeners about, you know, how can I look at my brain or can we direct you into, to an organization that can look at your brain, but look at your brain to if you're using something to address your brain, realize that that should just be a temporary solution. You mentioned earlier, what's the exit strategy? Like, yeah, I need to get through this right now, but what really is the exit strategy for this? And the, the exit strategy is the brain itself. It's so powerful in what it can do. And we just limit it when we say, well, this is the only way I can learn to focus. You can learn physics, you can learn to focus. So for those listeners who want to learn more, Doc, who do they call? Yeah, I think they go to uh, either RoyerNeuroscience.com, RoyerNeuroscience.com. Uh, you can reach out to me through there, or you can go to ForgeInnerArmor.com. Uh, ForgeInnerArmor, um, our staff, you'll get to me as well through there. But we want to help you. We want you to understand that whatever you think your ceiling is, is so much higher than that. And it goes first to diagnosing the brain correctly and looking at the brain. Well, that's great. Hey, we've had a great afternoon of talking about the brain and learning and all the different ways that our bodies and brains are just amazing and the ways that we can develop as human beings. And we've done it all sitting out here in the Piney Woods. Awesome. And awesome. Doc, thanks for joining me out here in the, in the woods on the shores of the Great Lakes. Yeah, this is beautiful out here. Come to our senses out here, definitely. Yeah. Thanks, Doc. Yep. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.